Many of you are familiar with the film made back in 1993 based on the true story of Daniel Rudiger, though most of you probably know him better by the name Rudy. All he wanted to do was go to Notre Dame and play football, but there were three obstacles that stood in his way, three insurmountable challenges. One, his grades weren't good enough. Another one, he didn't have enough money. And then finally, he also wasn't a good enough football player. So three fairly significant challenges, right? Didn't have the grades, he didn't have the money, and he didn't have the talent. Predictably, predictably, the movie traces his route as this underdog who, even though with so many obstacles, the movie traces the movie, the movie traces his story till the day when in his final year, in his senior year of school, at the final game, with the final play, he is able to finally step into the game and realize all of his hopes and dreams. And of course, it's a uh, it's an inspiring moment that everyone rejoices over because it's exciting to see him step into the game. And then he gets carried off the field, which my, my understanding is is the first time in Notre Dame history that a player has been carried off the field. And at least by the time of the movie in 1993, he would he had still been the only player to be carried off the field. Now, Rudy's determination and drive come together to make this movie ranked one of the most inspiring movies in movie history. What is it? What is it that attracts us to an underdog story? We like to root for the underdogs, don't we? It's always an exciting thing to see. Psychologists Goldschmidt and Vandello, they argue that People innately have this desire for the world to be a fair place. In other words, if you put in the effort, if you put in, if you put in the time, if you're determined enough, then you should have a fair chance. You should have an opportunity. Consequently, then, it's even more thrilling when we see a character or a team with so many obstacles against them, but they're still able to overcome and they're still able to succeed. Now, over the past few weeks, we've been able to look at two very different underdogs. We've been looking at the story of Ruth and Naomi play out. And these two women, they've been through a lot, right? There's been a loss of children, of husbands, of homeland, of status, of a people and a nation. But through it all, we've seen God's sustaining providence in their lives, God's sustaining power and provision for them that kind of climaxed last week in what we expected to be a marriage between Ruth and Boaz, right? But instead, instead, instead of the marriage that we had expected, we learned that there's another potential suitor that is actually, that actually comes before Boaz. Last week's passage then left us guessing who Ruth's and Naomi's redeemer would ultimately be and what would be their final lot. Will these underdogs ultimately prevail? And I, I think today's answer might actually surprise you a little bit. So today we'll look at chapter four at the various redeemers, at the various redeemers looking to the answer, looking to answer the question whether there will be a redeemer to restore a future for Ruth and Naomi. Can the underdogs come out on top again? Let's, uh, let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, you are glorious. God, again, I just, I thank you for, I thank you for this book of Ruth, Lord. I thank you for your word. I thank you that you speak to us. Father, I pray that you would do it again afresh, Lord, that as we, as we are in your word this morning, God, that you would work powerfully in our hearts to draw our minds and our hearts to worship you. 
Father, please convict us with the power of your word so that we can see the beauty of your Son all the more clearly. Father, please just draw us near. We pray this through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. Looking at Redeemer number 1. Looking at uh, Ruth chapter 4. We'll begin by reading verses 1 through 8. Ruth chapter 4, looking at verses 1 through 8. Now, Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the, re- the, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz, so Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took two men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they also sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, Buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the, from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm a transaction. The one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Our passage begins this morning, then, in the wake of chapter 3 with no time delays. In fact, it's very probable that we should understand these, these first few verses, or maybe even this entire passage, as happening concurrently with the last few verses of chapter 3. Ruth has gone to Boaz in the middle of the night in what was a stunningly daring marriage proposal, right? But he couldn't accept it. Boaz couldn't accept the proposal. Because in ancient Israel, the closest relative of the widow's deceased husband was expected to act as both redeemer by rescuing the family property, but also as the leverate by marrying the widow to keep the family line going. He sent Ruth off early in the morning back to Naomi with a gift, and he quickly left the threshing floor for the little town of Bethlehem to find some resolution for Ruth. He wasn't totally sure if he was going to be able to marry her, but he was, he was committed to making sure she and Naomi were taken care of. So he went to the town and he sat. Now, he sat at the gate of the town. Now, obviously, that's not something we do today. That might sound a little bit odd, right? If you have some kind of a business or legal transaction, you don't get, go sit on Highway 8, right? You don't do that. We, we have offices for that, which we're very thankful for because that would be cold. But in the ancient world, in the ancient world, the gate, because the towns were made so small, there wasn't much room in the, uh, in the streets and there weren't offices actually supplied for it. So, so the, the most spacious area in town was actually at the gate. And so that's where the market would be. That's where people would, would, would gather. That's where transactions would take place. So if Boaz is going with the hopes of actually, uh, of actually running into that redeemer, the gate is a really normal place for him to go. He sees Redeemer. We're going to just, we're just going to call this no-named Redeemer, Redeemer number one for now. He sees Redeemer number one, and he invites him to join him. 
Now, it's interesting here, at least in the ESV um, that, that we just looked at, Boaz refers to Redeemer number one as friend, right? Now, it, it's interesting because that's not actually what that Hebrew word says. That Hebrew word is just a very difficult word to translate. So difficult that some of your translations actually just leave it off entirely. Because we're not totally sure what it means. I think the New English translation comes a little bit, a little bit closer when it simply translates it as John Doe. Right? Isn't that interesting? The, the reason is, is because that, the, that word there, it's actually two different words, and both words are completely meaningless as far as we know. Um, they're completely meaningless, but they kind of rhyme. And so it'd be similar to something like in English, like helter-skelter. Like as far as I know, helter doesn't mean anything, and skelter doesn't really mean anything, but, but we use it, and together that expression kind of has some vague meaning. So here in this passage, this expression is standing in place of this individual's name. It'd be similar to saying, so-and-so came by, or Joe Schmo. Joe Schmo would probably be a very, you know what, forget Redeemer number one. We're just going to call him Joe from here on, Joe Schmo. In other words, the writer of Ruth is actually going out of his way to not mention the name of this relative. Boaz did not refer to this relative that he knew as Joe Schmo. This is the way the writer is portraying the situation, right? He's going out of his way to leave this relative nameless. We'll talk a little more about that later. Boaz gathers ten elders, the leaders of the town, to act as witnesses in this legal matter. Now, he begins by explaining the situation. Naomi is selling off Elimelech's property. And this makes sense, right? Because the profit of the sale would go towards providing for her and Ruth to support themselves. And frankly, they probably couldn't maintain the land on their own anyways. In ancient Israel, land didn't even really belong to people. The land was seen as being a possession of God. And God had allotments that he would distribute out to families. But, but it was all ultimately always God. So even if the land was sold off, it still, it still would return to the family eventually that God had given it to, had allotted it to. All right? So ultimately it would be part of the inheritance for a future heir or whatever. So a redeemer had an obligation then to buy family land back once it was sold off or to take care of family land as much as possible to keep it in the family because it was a family thing. Now, this is a good deal for Joe, right? Joe, Joe hears this and he's excited. Yes, he has to pay to purchase the land and to maintain it. And it's probably assumed that he'll also take care of Naomi as well, Elimelech's elderly widow. But financially, this still would make a lot of sense for Joe. Joe would be able to purchase the land at a cheap rate, right? And then he would get years of produce from it. And even better, since Elimelech didn't have an heir, this land would never go back to the family of Elimelech because there was no heir to maintain it. So, so it would actually become part of the inheritance of Joe Schmo, right? And then it would be something he could pass down to his kids and such. Um, that's why we have such a fast response in verse 4 from Joe. He's gladly willing to take the redemption rights. Now, uh, this is where our hearts should sink a little bit because we know that Boaz isn't really all that concerned about the ground. He's concerned about the girl, right? This is where Boaz's ingenuity shines through, though. You can almost see Boaz slyly responding here, right? That sounds great, Joe. We have all the paperwork in order. All you need to do is sign on the dotted line, and then we'll get the wedding ready, right? 
You can imagine Joe's chin just kind of hit the table at this point. Boaz goes on to emphasize that this has got to happen because in verse 5, we have to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance. We have to perpetuate the name of Elimelech. That's such a significant thing. There's still opportunity to perpetuate Elimelech's line through Ruth. And as we've mentioned previously, this is a reference to levirate marriage practices in ancient Israel. It was incredibly important to have heirs so that close family members were expected to come alongside and to perpetuate the family line when necessary. Boaz is giving Joe this opportunity as the closest relative, right? Legally, he's required to do this. Now, this radically changes things for Joe. Joe responds in verse 6, whereas before he was willing to, to, to step in, he responds in verse 6 with a very different answer, right? There was no heir. There was no heir previously. And so it would have made sense for him to have taken on because eventually this would have become his inheritance. But now, now he'd have to pay for the land. He'd have to take care of Naomi and a new bride, Ruth, we don't actually even know it's possible that he might already be married with a family. Polygamy was actually legal in Israel at this point in time. So he might have already had a family that he was taking care of. It's possible then that he also could have had a child with Ruth, who that child would have then become the heir of Elimelech's line, right? So, so, so Joe Schmo would have actually lost the property to this new heir. So all the money, everything that he had just invested, he would have lost. And on top of it all, because this heir of Elimelech was also born by Joe Schmo, he would also have a claim on some of the inheritance from Joe Schmo. So it would actually end up dividing Joe Schmo's inheritance as well. Ruth's presence poses a significant problem for Joe. And Joe wants nothing to do with the land or the girl. And so he hastily hands the rights of redemption over to Boaz. In a dramatic gesture, following the ancient customs of Israel, Joe, Joe offers, it back to him, offers it back to Boaz. He takes his shoe off and he hands it to him. Right? This was a dramatic gesture formalizing this transaction, this agreement. I, I don't know exactly how that worked. I don't know if in ancient Israel they had their filing cabinets with like a shoebox attached to the side and you just like pull out people's shoes like, oh yeah, I have the proof that I purchased that car. Look at the shoe. Um, I, I'm not totally sure how the details of that work out, but, but, but apparently they exchange shoes. Um, now look, Joe Schmo, we, we don't really know anything about his motivations here. The passage doesn't go on to describe it, to describe exactly all of the motivations that are behind this, right? We, we, we know in some way that it'll affect his inheritance, but we don't know much more than that. I don't think this passage here is attempting to shame him in any, in any way. But there is an irony here. There is an irony here. He's concerned about impairing his inheritance. Right? A significant part of that is perpetuating his own name. There's the concern that we see from Boaz, remember, to make sure Elimelech's name is perpetuated. We're talking about legacy here. This is a matter of legacy. A name and a legacy were hugely important in the ancient world, that their name and their reputation could be passed down from one generation to the next through their lineage. Notice then the irony of this account that, that, that we see Joe Schmo concerned to make sure his inheritance is intact and yet his name is forgotten, right? The author has gone out of his way 
to not mention Joe's name and is simply referring to him as so-and-so or Joe Schmo. This was an intentional sliding of Joe's name. His name has been forgotten. It's gone. But there is another Redeemer who is willing to stand in, right? Redeemer number two. Be reading in verses 9 through 13. Then Boaz said to the elders of all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of, uh, from the hand of Naomi all that belong to Elimelech and all that belong to Kilian and Malone. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malone, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. So Redeemer 1 is out of the picture, right? Redeemer, Redeemer 1 has gone, and Redeemer 2 has stepped up to the plate. He's willing to do what Redeemer 1, what Joe Schmo wouldn't do. And we, we, all, we can breathe assured now, right? Because this is what we've been waiting for since chapter 2, when Ruth first met Boaz. We've been waiting for a marriage to take place. Now, remember, Joe's concerns, they were legitimate. So Boaz here... He's taking significant responsibility on himself. And while it appears that he has feelings for Ruth and that might actually be driving this situation, that's, that's not the motivation he states here. The motivation he states here is in verse 10, to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. So this is an act of kindness and grace towards the house of Elimelech. The elders and the other witnesses confirm this decision and they speak a blessing over Boaz and Ruth in verses 11 to 13. They say three things. First, they have a blessing for Ruth. The blessing describes her as being like Rachel and Leah, right? These were matriarchs in ancient Israel. If you're familiar with their story from Genesis, they're the wives of Jacob through whom basically the 12 tribes come. So there's two things here. First, Ruth is honored. She's, she's, she's put in a revered position. She's come into a nation as the most basic, as the lowest of the low, and now she has climbed to the highest ranks of honor in Israel, though her, through her continued compassion and through her continued virtue. Second, she's blessed that her, that her house would be full. It would be full of children, right? This is her second marriage. She had been married to Malone for 10 years and had had no children. She was barren. So this would have been a precious blessing to her. Second, Boaz is blessed. He's blessed that, that he would continue to act worthily in Ephrathah. We, we were told back in chapter 2 that he was worthy. So this is a desire that he would continue to do so. Ephrathah was another name for Bethlehem. And, uh, and that his name would be renowned. Literally, the Hebrew states that his name would be called Right Again, we see a concern for name. Basically, they're saying, you've been so concerned about Elimelech's name, we want your name to be honored, to be honored in all the town that all the people would recognize, would recognize this act of generosity and this act of grace on your part. 
And third, their family is blessed, that their child would be a source of blessing, just as Perez was. Um, he was a significant figure in the book of Genesis in the line of Judah, right? He came through an unusual leverage um, uh, situation, similar kind of to Ruth and Boaz here. And Boaz's and Ruth's child then was blessed that they would be an unexpected, a surprising blessing to them and a funnel of God's goodness into their lives. That was the role this child would play. Now, th- this is kind of where we would expect the story to end then. They've gotten married, they've had the child, they're perpetuating the line, but the story doesn't end yet. The scene culminates later with Redeemer number three. Let's look at verses 14 to 17. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed, and um, he was the father of Jesse, the father of David. We have a third redeemer here. Ruth gives birth to a son, Obed. This is a miraculous work of God because, again, remember, Ruth had been barren. And then right when you expect some some, some final words of attention towards Ruth and Boaz, because they've just had a kid, right? That's when moms and dads are supposed to get the praise and supposed to get the blessings and all of that. But right, right when they're expecting it, instead, the attention shifts to Naomi and a group of women in verse 14. The women bless the Lord with an interesting blessing. They, they, they praise him for providing a redeemer for Naomi. Now, the obvious assumption as we're reading through the passage is that this redeemer would be Boaz. Because outside of Joe Schmo, right, Boaz is the only redeemer that's been mentioned so far. However, verse 14 tells us that this redeemer was just provided this day. Right? This, this Redeemer was just provided this day. Whereas Boaz had actually redeemed Ruth nine months previous, right? So there's been a nine-month span, not, certainly not this day. And on top of that, verse 15 goes on to state that Ruth has actually given birth to this Redeemer. This Redeemer isn't Boaz. This Redeemer is Obed. He's our third Redeemer. The women pronounce a blessing over him in verses 14 to 15. And they ask that his name would be renowned in Israel. So again, that his name would be made much of. This is very similar to the expression that we saw concerning Boaz back in verse 11. Again, we see the emphasis on name and on lineage. Obed was to have a well-known name and a significant lineage like his father. But even more so than his father, whereas Boaz was just, was just supposed to be well-known in the town of Bethlehem, Obed was supposed to be well-known in the nation of Israel, right? The women declare that he's to do two things on top of this, that he's supposed to restore the life of Naomi, and he's meant to nourish her in her old age. This points to a reversal for Naomi. Whereas at the end of chapter 1, Naomi had proclaimed that she had left to go to Moab full. She had returned from Moab empty, 
right? She had left with a husband and sons and hope for a future, but God had brought her, had brought her back empty-handed and hopeless. She had found some hope for her daughter-in-law, but still herself was empty. Here in chapter 4, she has been given a new, uh, new family. She has been given a people that care for her. She's found provision. And even more significantly for an ancient Israelite, she has found hope for the future through Obed. Her situation has been reversed, and Obed is brimming with hope for her. It reminds me of a song by William Cooper, an old hymn. It reads like this. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. This is the experience of Naomi. She has gone empty, but she has come back full, right? She has, she, she has turned to bitterness, but now she has found sweetness again. This is what God does, not just for Naomi, but even for us, right? There are promises of sweetness, even in the darkest times of bitterness. Even when we feel the most empty, God promises there is fullness. There is a fullness that we can begin to experience in this life, not through situations, not saying that we'll get everything we want because we, we won't, right? So it's not necessarily through the details of life that this fullness will come. Rather, he promises us an even greater fullness, a fullness that we can experience only through his son. Naomi is a picture of what we get to experience but it is frail in comparison to the fullness that we get to enjoy. Naomi is the underdog. She is, she was empty and now she's full. She's made it to Notre Dame and she's played in the last, in the last play of the last game, right? Um, but the story still isn't quite over yet. The story isn't over with Obed. Notice verse 17 doesn't end on him. Rather, it ends on David the fourth redeemer, looking at verses 18 to 22. Now, these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Notice that's not salmon. For all of you fishermen out there, it's not salmon, it is salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. You see what this is. The whole time we've been reading the book of Ruth, it wasn't really about Ruth, the Moabitess, who showed us such intrepid compassion and courageous conversion. And it wasn't about Naomi, the main object of the reversal. And this wasn't even about Boaz, the hero who comes riding in on his white horse. It wasn't about any of them, not really, not ultimately. The author wants us to understand that the whole story has been leading us to verses 17 and 22. It's been about David. Um, so our, our, our family, our family has been in a Star Wars kick lately, you know, preparing for December 20th, which I'm sure all of you have marked on your calendars. And if not, shame. <laughs> for, for those of you who don't know, December 20th marks the release uh, of the newest movie and supposedly the last line in the uh, Skywalker saga. We'll see. I don't know. 
They're still making money off it. Um, but supposedly the last one, and hopefully at least, at least those who don't enjoy Star Wars as much, hopefully you are at least aware of this, that it's an interesting series because the, the first three movies, right, came out in the late seventies, early, early eighties, 77, 80 and 83, um, is, is when the first three came out, but the first three weren't labeled episodes one, two, and three, right? The first three that came out were episodes four, five, and six which is so weird, but so creative and so neat. Um, episodes four, five, and six. And then, and then 20 years later, 20 years after those episodes, they began releasing other episodes, episodes one, two, and three that we call the prequels, right? And, uh, and the, they're not great, but they're so worth watching. <laughs> I, I, I could just keep talking about Star Wars for a while. Um, but, uh, but, but, but they, they, they were created, the prequels were created to help fill in the blanks and to help provide backstory about how things came to be the way that they were, right? So, so, so the prequels were always pointing forward to something else. They weren't primarily about the characters even in them. They were more about the characters to come and the role that they served in the bigger story. Right? And as Star Wars fans, we were able to watch the prequels, even though there were painful characters and painful romances and things like that, because there was a greater story that we were able to enjoy and to look forward to. The book of Ruth is a prequel. The book of Ruth is a prequel. This whole thing was written to prepare and to explain who King David was. It's explaining his heritage and why he was fit to be the great king, the greatest king in all of Israel's history. Typically, the lineage of a great king would come through a series of past great kings. But since, but since the monarchy was still young in ancient Israel, they didn't have a lineage to draw from. So instead, instead, we get to see here David's lineage through two people, right? Through two people who were palpable displays of God's loving kindness. David and his descendants were uniquely suited to serve as kings because of what we see in Ruth and Boaz. David and his descendants were meant to be demonstrations of loving kindness to the, to the nation of Israel. So the women back in verses 14 to 17, they spoke better than they knew. Not only was it true that Obed would be a great blessing and would come, and the, and the blessing would ultimately come through him, but the author wants us to pick up that this blessing was actually about David. It was actually about David, whose name would be renowned not just through Israel, but well beyond Israel, right? That he would be a funnel of blessing and restoration to Israel. That he would follow in the pattern of Ruth and Boaz in displaying righteousness and loving kindness. That uh, that David and his dynasty of kings, right? That they would be the redeemers that they were called to be, right? This is ultimately where the story is leading. This book is all about kings. It's all about kings. But even, even that fails to capture the whole picture. Just like the author indicated previously, the women spoke better than they knew. Well, the author also spoke better than he knew. Because ultimately, there was a greater redeemer that's being pointed to in this. There's a greater redeemer. There's a fifth redeemer. There's a fifth redeemer that's far beyond Naomi's wildest expectations. We got to see David's short little genealogy. Let's look at a different genealogy. Let's look at a different genealogy. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 1. 
And I'm not going to read it for you because that would that would be painful for me. And I would butcher a lot of the names. And then you guys would make fun of me later and I'd feel bad. Um, so I'm not going to read it. However, I'm going to have someone else sing it for me. Abraham had Isaac, Isaac he had Jacob, Jacob he had Judah and his kin. Well, then Perez and Zerah came from Judah's woman Tamar, Perez he brought Hezron up and then came Aram, then Amenadab, then Nashan, who was then the dad of Salmon, who with Rahab fathered Boaz. She married Boaz, who had Obed, who had Jesse. Jesse, he had David, who we know as king. David, he had Solomon by dead Uriah's wife. Solomon, well, you all know him. He had good old Rehoboam, followed by Abijah, who had Asa. Asa had Jehoshaphat, had Joram, had Isaiah, who had Jotham, then Ahaz, then Hezekiah, followed by Manasseh, who had Amon, who was a man, who was father of a good boy named Josiah, who grandfathered Jehoiakim, who caused the Babylonian captivity, because he was a Shealtiel, who begat Zerubbabel, who had Abiud, who had Eliakim, Eliakim had Azer, who had Zadok, who had Achim, Achim was the father of Eliabin, he had Eliezer, who had Nathan, who had Jacob, listen very closely, I don't want to sing this twice. Jacob was the father of Joseph, husband of Mary, mother of Christ. That is, that is serious talent to make a genealogy sound that interesting. You see, this wasn't even a, pre- a prequel for David. Not really. I said that earlier, but I was just trying to take up time because I didn't want you guys to get out early. I didn't want anyone to feel slighted. Ultimately, ultimately, this has been pointing forward to Christ the whole time. Jesus is the one who would come from Bethlehem of Ephrathah, right? He's the one who is righteousness and loving kindness. Boaz and Ruth, their actions were just, were just molded on him and his, and his heart and his kindness and his goodness. He is the ultimate redeemer who did not hesitate at personal cost to himself, right? He didn't hesitate, but delighted to bind us to himself. He is the Redeemer who was blessed with a name that would be known in Bethlehem, in all Israel, even to the ends of the earth. The name that is above every name and by which every knee would bow, according to Philippians 2. He is the Redeemer who would be the restorer of all things, according to Acts chapter 3, and the channel of blessing to all, according to Galatians chapter 3. He is the Redeemer, and there is no one greater. He is the God who restores through the will of the Father, by the power of the Spirit. We are all underdogs, right? 
We are the underdogs with insurmountable obstacles weighing in on us without hope, empty, bitter, broken. That's, that's who we are. But He restores our souls. Psalm 23, the Lord restores my soul. It is through Him and through His coming and through His greatness and through His kingship and through His redemption that He brings us restoration. We thrive through the birth of a babe. He is the light piercing into the darkness. We were empty and now we're full. We were bitter, but now we're made sweet. We were forsaken, but we were bought with a price. We're not our own. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Do you hear what I hear? A child, a child sleeping in the night. He will bring this, he will bring us goodness and light. Let's pray. Father, you are good and glorious. I thank you so much for your word. I thank you so much for the way the way that you present the beauty and the majesty of your son, Lord. God, you are good. We thank you for the great gift that he is, for the great blessing, for the the funnel of blessing that he continues to be to each of us, that though we are empty, Father, you provide fullness. Lord, please just continue to work powerfully in our hearts to draw us near. We pray this through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. Now, if you would stand for the benediction. This comes from Numbers chapter 6, verses 24 to 26. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. Go in the grace and the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Have a good day.